For all of the, the joy in the Christmas story, and it's full of joy, there's a kind of foreboding, haunting presence in the various texts. The texts are what is called fraught, meaning the action takes place on a stage, the backdrop of which is threatening. There is, under the joy, just a little bit of that same fear and trembling, that same dread that one senses reading the account of Abraham ascending Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. Or, to put this a little differently, the shadow of the cross hangs over the story from the beginning. In fact, in our text, the shadow of the cross brackets the light. I want to look at the text under three headings. They're on the back inside page of your bulletin. Solidarity, the song, and the sword. So first, the solidarity. This is Luke chapter 2. Verse 21 tells us that Mary and Joseph had Jesus circumcised on the eighth day, and they named him then. And you'll note in this text how insistent Luke is on the obedience of Jesus' parents. He mentions acts of obedience to the law in verses 21, 22, 23, 24, 27. And then at the end, right after our text in verse 39, he says, When they had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. So this parental obedience, it concerns the fact that their son is born, as Paul would later put it, born of a woman, born under the law. I want to look a little bit in this opening point of some implications of this. We can say three things about this. The first thing to look at is the circumcision itself. Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. right? This was the sign of the covenant instituted way back in Genesis with Abraham. But what did circumcision symbolize? Well, it symbolizes the sinfulness of the human race all the way down in its roots, at the place where it's propagated. Right? The organ of regeneration has to be cut. That points to the need for regeneration. It's, it points then to the need for cleansing new life through blood. And that's why throughout the whole Old Testament, the cry is, circumcise your hearts. Not your foreskins. Circumcision points to the need for an interior cutting, for a remaking of the human person, for a reordering of our disordered loves. So we need to ask then, why then was Jesus circumcised? He was not sinful. He did not need cleansing. And so here we see that first shadow of the cross. He will fully, without reserve, stand in solidarity with us. He always places himself on our side. He will be numbered, counted, 
with the sinners, the transgressors, not just at the cross, but at the very beginning of his life. He doesn't get to play by any special rules. He is like every other Israelite born under the law and like every other Israelite. He receives the knife of cutting. There's a wonderful collect, which is a short prayer in the, in the history of the church's liturgies that says he was circumcised in his spotless flesh to put honor on the law which he came to fulfill. He bleeds from the beginning. John Milton, in his poem, a poem entitled Upon the Circumcision, wrote this. Alas, how soon our sin sore doth bring his infancy to seize. He's seized by your sin from the beginning. Finally, he will be cut off, circumcised, if you will, at the cross, so you can receive true circumcision of heart. Right? That the circumcision he undergoes as an infant foreshadows the cutting that will happen to his flesh on the cross. Circumcision, the blood and the cutting, is the sacrament that points to Calvary. Secondly, notice this purification. You can see this in the text says, when the time came for their purification, according to the law, they bring him up to Jerusalem right, to offer a sacrifice, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So after a pregnancy, a woman would be not morally, but symbolically, ceremonially unclean. The idea is you lose blood in delivery Life is in the blood, and when life flows away from you, you're, if you will, symbolically contaminated by death. Same thing if a male loses any bodily fluids. Life is in the, in the blood. But you would think, you would think that in giving birth to this baby, Mary would not be made unclean. But you would be wrong. That is not the case. Jesus is born of a sinful mother in the midst of an unclean nation. He comes from a long genealogy of sinners in need of purification. And so we have here another shadow hanging over the narrative of the cross. His birth is going to be treated like any other birth. It makes his mother unclean. And so Mary and Joseph offer the sacrifice. Two doves or two pigeons. These are substitute offerings in the law of Moses, allowed for the poor because they were cheaper and they were easier to obtain. And so there's another shadow. Jesus is born into poverty. He's born poor. He who was rich for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. So he stands with us in his poverty and he will be the sacrifice which purifies not only Mary, but all the faithful. That's the second shadow of the cross. Here's the third one. It's in the presentation of Jesus in the temple. Right? Another reason they come up to Jerusalem is to present Jesus as their firstborn. 
The law required this. This is rooted in the Exodus, when God redeemed the firstborn of Israel. And the law required that the firstborn be redeemed, usually by a small sum of money, a price paid to liberate the firstborn. But again, the question arises, why does Jesus have to be redeemed in the temple? And the answer is the same answer. Right? He fully identifies in his humanity as God's only son, as Mary's firstborn, with the need of all people for redemption at a price. He stands with the people in need of liberation. He stands with human beings in their bondage and darkness. And he's going to offer that human being, that human nature of his, right, which was redeemed back by his parents here, he will offer it for the redemption of all who are born under the law. So you have in this text, it's a well-known text, but you have a kind of threefold solidarity from the beginning, right? In the circumcision, in the purification, in the presentation of the firstborn. It's a thick shadow cast across the Christmas story, and Luke expects his readers to get it. He has architected his gospel for us to get it. So that's the solidarity. The second thing, after the shadow... There is light. The second thing is Simeon's song. And we're introduced to him in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. That simply means he kept the law. And when he didn't, he offered the appropriate sacrifices. But more importantly, it means he understood what the law pointed to, what the law symbolized. We can see this when the text tells us about Simeon, and this is all you need to know about this guy. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is a man who knew, right, and and believed passages like Isaiah 40, which speak of this consolation. Comfort, O comfort ye my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Simeon knows that his nation is in exile, forlorn. He knows there's a promised Messiah who will gather and heal and comfort the languishing people of God. And he's waiting for that consolation to appear. Even as we are to wait for the second advent, to long for it as he waited for the first Our longing is reoriented, but it is just as fierce and just as focused as Simeon's. Advent is precisely about that. It is about turning the church to desire to see the Lord's consolation. So this was a man whose whole being is yearning for this comfort, groaning for it. Notice the text emphasizes the intimacy that Simeon had with God. Three times his relationship to the Holy Spirit is mentioned. We are told the Spirit of God was upon him, that he had received this special revelation from the Spirit, that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ, and that he was led by the Spirit into the temple. There's a deep connection between walking in the Spirit this way and yearning for the consolation of Israel. 
Right? Paul puts it this way for us on the other side of the resurrection. Having but the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan. We groan for what? 2 Corinthians 5, the redemption of our bodies. We groan for what is mortal to be swallowed up by life. Simeon is full of the Holy Spirit. And this scene in the temple is an extraordinarily tender scene between him, the baby, and the parents. He won't see death until he has seen the Lord's Christ. It'll be decades before Peter can acknowledge and recognize that Jesus is the Lord's Christ. But here God gives that revelation in advance to Simeon and a bit later to Anna, an 84-year-old woman who was also in the temple at the same time. And you know what Anna and others in Israel are doing? Waiting for the redemption of Israel. Even as we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies, Paul says. Paul says, having the Spirit, you are sealed for the day of redemption. So we're reminded in this text that for all of her rebellion, for all of her hostility, for all of her continued centuries-long subjugation to foreign powers, God still preserves a holy remnant in Israel. Buried in this mass of confusion is this man, Simeon, and this woman, Anna. And you can be sure God is doing the same thing today. So Simeon is led by the Spirit. He happens to come into the temple just as Mary and Joseph are in there. He takes Jesus in his arms. He praises God and he says this. Sovereign Lord. As you have promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. Simeon's song or his prayer is known to us down through the history of the church, right? And sung repeatedly at this time of year. It's called the Nunc Dimittis, which is Latin for now you are dismissing. It's taken right from the text. He is saying quite simply holding the baby Jesus in his arms, now I can die. God is dismissing him from his long, faithful life. He's like a night watchman, watching and waiting for the morning star. And once he sees it, he's relieved of his watch. And now he can look on the face of the triune God in light and glory. If you see, if you long for, if you embrace this child, the Lord's Christ, if you see him, you are ready to die. Christianity is life in Christ. And that makes it in a very profound way preparation for death. You may or may not be aware of this, but classically, the pastoral ministry, what pastors do, what their calling is at a deep and fundamental level is simply this, to prepare people to die well. Life is a series of shocks to the flesh. It's a vaporous thing. It ends in death. 
A large part of what the ministry of the church does is to prepare people to die. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears in glory, then you will appear in glory with him. Or as Paul put it, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And this only makes sense for people yearning to see the Lord's Christ. T.S. Eliot, in his poem, A Song for Simeon, he puts it this way. My life is light, waiting for the death wind, like a feather on the back of my hand. So is everybody's life, by the way. My life is light, waiting for the death wind, like a feather on the back of my hand. Let the infant, still unspeaking, An unspoken word. Grant Israel's consolation to one who has 80 years and no tomorrow. Let thy servant depart, having seen thy salvation. Simeon has seen the Lord's Christ. He's gazed on the consolation of Israel. And he says, in seeing that face, I have seen the Lord's salvation. And he's a lifelong student of Scripture. And he knows that this salvation that he's gazing upon in Jesus, it's one that has universal range. You can see this in verses 31 and 32. It's prepared in the sight of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory for Israel. This has always been the promise. We heard it in the New Testament lesson today from Romans 15 and in the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 60. Israel's light and glory will go out beyond the nations. This is the splendor of epiphany light. Light pouring out into the world from this child who will later designate himself audaciously as the light of the world. Most of us sitting here this morning are the fruit of this light bursting out beyond the borders of Israel. Before the wise men, before the nations, there was Simeon and Anna. To the Jew first, then to the Greek. So the third point here is Simeon's prophecy or the sword. Notice the the architecture. Shadow, light, shadow. That's how Luke has structured his gospel. In verse 34, Simeon blesses them. He pronounces a benediction, but he speaks directly to Mary. He blesses Mary and Joseph, but he speaks to Mary. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Now here we can see that this child is the word of God. And thus he's a kind of two-edged sword which pierces and which uncovers Right? Jesus uncovers the thoughts and intents of the heart. He exposes human beings, Simeon says. He strips them bare. He confronts them with their darkness. He calls us to lose our lives, to save them, and to follow him. To come face to face with him is to come face to face with the end of all things. This is why Jesus talks the way he does in the gospel. 
He doesn't argue. He doesn't conjole. He doesn't ask you to consider. He doesn't say, here's some evidence. He says, I am who I am. Take up your cross. Follow me. This is what makes Christmas so dangerous. Because the baby is lethal. Some are going to fall. Some are going to stumble over him. He's a stumbling block to the Jews, Paul says. He's foolishness to the Greeks. And the fall is dreadful. Right? The gospel is light, but it's light which will also cause stumbling. It causes rising and it causes falling. It's an aroma of death to some and an aroma of life to others. And so Simeon is saying something like this. Look at in this child, the light and the love of God will penetrate into our darkness and some will turn away from it. Yet some will be broken and humbled before the light. They will cling to him and they will rise and be made new. Right? For some he is judgment. For some he is consolation. But for all, he is the very face of God's holy love looking into the abyss of the human condition. And this cannot be otherwise, Simeon says. He is appointed. He is destined for this. He is a sign that will be spoken against, Simeon says. Imagine a mother getting this prophecy. The sign that Jesus is, the sign that is unveiled in the cross, will be widely rejected. And then he speaks to Mary about her coming maternal sorrow. He says to her, a sword will pierce through your own heart. You will be wounded, Mary. You will endure what no mother should have to endure. Not only, think about this, Mary has to live with this dark prophecy for three decades. You will have to live with this when you raise your son. And you will sense the gathering storm. And you will watch the violence. And you'll be at the foot of the cross when John and everyone else has fled. With John, when everyone else has fled. And it will tear you apart. Merry Christmas, Mary. He doesn't say that. But it's an integral part. It is part of the message of good Christmas cheer. And it's only because we've so sentimentalized and commercialized it that that we've sort of scrubbed this stuff out of the story. This is also that Simeon continues here that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, right? That's what Jesus does. He exposes. If he's the light of revelation, he exposes. What did Jesus himself say about his ministry? Who talks like this? Jesus said this, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to bring division. Where does that sword run? Right through the heart of families. I will set a mother against a daughter-in-law. A father against their children. Sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. I'll cut the family right in half. I have not come to bring peace. I have come to bring a sword. Right? And the, the backlash that he creates means he himself stands under that sword of judgment for our sakes. And in this mortal life, In this mortal life, the sword that pierced Mary's heart will pierce ours as well. There is no escaping this. 
For the light of the gospel wages war with the darkness that's in us. Darkness within, darkness without. The light of the gospel guarantees suffering. To you it has been granted not only to believe in Christ Jesus, but to suffer for his sake. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. To live in Christ is to suffer and to wrestle and to fight with this present darkness. You know what Jesus never says? He never says, take up your resurrection and follow me. That doesn't mean we don't have resurrection power. It doesn't mean we're not resurrected with Christ through our baptism. It does mean that in this age, the only way to partake of that power is to be mysteriously united to his death. Right? Paul says, I desire to know his resurrection, to know the power of the resurrection by being conformed unto his death. So to be illumined in Christ right, is to be lit up with this epiphany light and to see through a glass darkly. Right? This is the paradox of the Christian life. It is to be light in the light, in the one who is the light of the world, in the life that's been poured forth and to see through the glass darkly. It is to be slain and made alive. It is the power of resurrection in weakness and in suffering. It is trauma surgery to be a Christian because we need deep healing. Because the disease is deep and entrenched. Because God does not turn a blind eye to human nature. It is preparation for dying. How does Paul talk about this? You know what Paul says? I always carry about in my body the dying of Jesus. Would you ever know this by encountering Christian people? I always carry about in my body the dying of Jesus that the life of Jesus might be manifested. Death works in me, he says, so that life can work in you. There is no resurrection power apart from this mystery. In the age to come, you'll have resurrection power without without death, without crucifixion. That's why Jesus never says, take up your resurrection and follow me. He says, take up your cross. It is preparation for dying. It is to see the light of Christ's faith now by faith and to be made ready like Simeon to depart in peace and to look upon him in glory face to face. The consolation then, the light And the joy of Christmas is mysteriously only experienced through the sword of the gospel, under the shadow of the cross, in the place where we are Simeons, longing now for the final consolation, the future coming of our long-expected Jesus, who, when we see him, shall raise us up to his glorious throne, to the land where shadows are banished, where there is no night where the glory of God and the Lamb are the light, to the place where his servants shall see his face. Glory to God. Amen. Amen.